Well, good morning, Rocky Peak. Uh, great to be with you. My name's Michael, and I'm one of the pastors here. I've had an exciting week, as you can see. Uh, involved, last, spent last weekend in a hospital, emergency surgery, concussion. So I'm a little bit woozy up here today. But I just wanted to let you know, since it's Easter, don't worry. If I go down, we do resurrection here. So uh, we're, we're good to go. But uh, it's great to be with you. You'll hear more about that down the line in Metamorphosis. But anyway, uh, for today, I'm so glad you're here with us. And we're going to go into our time of teaching right now. Just to give you a warning, when I go like this, it's not bless you, my child. It's just the way I look right now. All right? So, uh, so inside your program is a, a, a green and white message note sheet we use every week for our time of teaching. And I do want to welcome you, whether it's here in our worship center over in the Ridge or you're watching online. Uh, later on on YouTube. So we're going to jump in. If you guys are ready to go, I'm ready to jump in. You guys ready to go? Okay, let's pray. God, we're just excited to be here on Easter weekend to be celebrating one of the greatest events in world history, a turning point, a hinge point of all time, a time when you defeated death and defeated sin and uh, unleashed a whole new future, not only for us, but for all the creation. And so we pray today as we talk about the resurrection, the challenge of the resurrection, I pray that you'd fill me with your spirit, that we would gather as your church around your word, and you'd speak powerfully, supernaturally to us uh, by name. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, our story today starts uh, in a very famous European city. If I throw out the name, you'd know it right off the bat. But uh, he has come here under the cover of darkness. And he's been escorted by several friends that have really served more as a bodyguard. And once they deposit him, make sure that he's safe, they're going to return back to where they came. And for the next few days, he'll be waiting for his friends to catch up with him, part of his team. And so he has a chance to explore this famous city. We don't know for sure, but this may have been the very first time he's been there. But the more he explores the sights and the sounds, uh, the more his heart begins to break for this city. And before long, once again, he's going to find himself at the center of controversy. And he is going to be summoned to appear before the top council of the city and to present his case. And so as we start the story today, he's sitting in a dark room. The sun is just coming up. And he's beginning to think through what he wants to share, how he wants to present his defense, what he wants to say in this important council meeting that's going to determine his future and his freedom. Well, today is Easter, and we're here to celebrate uh, the resurrection of Jesus. And again, if you're new here, if uh, you are brought by family or friend, if you want to be here, if you don't want to be here, uh, we want to welcome you. So glad you're joining us, whether local or you come from distance. But uh, today, the topic on the table is the resurrection, and particularly the challenge the resurrection poses to each of our lives in a wide variety of areas, as we'll see as we go on. But I want to start today with, uh, with, by going back to this story that we just started the day with, this, this man who's been brought by friends uh, under the cover, perhaps, of darkness, um, serving as his as, as bodyguard into this very famous city. Uh, this is a story of one of the key leaders, it's a true story, of one of the key leaders of the early movement of Jesus. We call him, uh, his name is Paul. Uh, we, we know him uh, in Christian circles as the Apostle Paul. 
Uh, and uh, the Apostle Paul was brought up in Jerusalem. He's a Jewish man. He was brought up in Jerusalem, and he was fortunate enough to study under one of the leading rabbis of their day, a man named Gamaliel. He uh, was an amazing student, a brilliant man, had an incredible future. And so when the, when the movement of Jesus broke out in Jerusalem, that Paul saw this whole movement is not only a dangerous heresy, but he saw it as a dangerous heresy uh, that was built upon a uh, ridiculous hoax. And that hoax was the hoax of the resurrection, the claims about the resurrection. So he saw it as his duty, his responsibility to do everything he could to slow down or stop this movement, including arresting, beating, imprisoning, and then voting for the execution of followers of Jesus' new movement that we call the Way. And, uh, but that all changed for him where, where fairly soon, early in the movement, uh, as he was on one of his journeys to the ancient city of Damascus to flee, uh, to, to uh, pursue uh, Christians who were fleeing persecution in Jerusalem, that uh, as he was, as he was uh, by his own account, as he was nearing the gates, uh, the walls of the ancient city, that Jesus, the resurrected Jesus in his new body, uh, shows up and uh, challenges everything, or at least many of the things, that Paul had believed about who God was, who Jesus was, about the purpose of life, about the future. And uh, in that encounter, according to Paul's description, that Jesus commissioned him to speak for him as an apostle, uh, to share the message of his life, his death, his resurrection, and, and the implications it has for all of our lives and the way it challenges all of us. And so in the story that we started the day with, as the apostle, this is the apostle Paul is sharing the message of Jesus in what we would call today modern day Greece. And as he goes from city to city, he's being chased, harassed, his life is in danger. And so he has been escorted away from this uh, a northern city called Berea down to the famous European city of Athens. Now, I don't know if you've ever been there to Athens. I had the privilege of, Lynn and I were there a few years ago. And, and you know, much of the, the, the beauty of Athens or the fame of Athens, you still see there's the Parthenon and so on. And so as Paul comes to this very famous city, we don't know if it's the first time he was there or not, but likely it was. Uh, he's, he's doing the sites, uh, he's doing the, the tourist thing. He's, he's walking through the city, he's uh, checking in the sites, and wherever he goes, there's altars, there's statues, there's uh, idols, there are pagan temples. And uh, his heart begins to break for this city, his love for this city. And so uh, before long, he begins to share the message of Jesus, the message of his resurrection. So he starts at the synagogue like he normally does with a Jewish audience. Uh, but he also begins during the week going to the marketplace, and uh, it's called the Agora. And he begins sharing the message of Jesus. And there he gets into discussions with uh, two of the most influential philosophical movements of the ancient world called Epicureans and Stoics. Now, I'm not going to go into like everything about these philosophical movements, but it's important we understand just a little bit to understand what happens today. So at this point in time, even though Rome was the power, Athens was still the center of philosophy in the ancient world. You know, it was the home or adopted home of Plato and Aristotle and Zeno, and, uh, and so at this time, Epicureanism and, uh, and Stoicism were the big philosophical movements. Interesting, Stoicism is actually making kind of a comeback today. 
But uh, in a nutshell, Epicureans believe that there are many gods. It was kind of a pagan movement, many gods. But they believe that the gods were distant and far removed, not involved in human history or life. So they would be comparable to what later would be called deus. You know, the belief that in a god <coughs> who creates the world but then stands back and lets it run, not really involved in human history. On the other side were the Stoics. The Stoics believed in only one God, but not a personal God. They believed in a God who is more of a life force. So they would be uh, similar to what we would call today pantheists, that God is everything, or more accurately, uh, panentheism, that God is in everything. So they saw the whole cosmos uh, as like the body of the universe, and God is like the soul that inhabits every part. So he's, he's closer to us than the air we breathe, but he's not a personal God that you can have relationship with. And so it's this, these philosophical uh, elements that Paul in the marketplace begins to enter into discussion and debate, sharing the message of Jesus <coughs> and his resurrection. Uh, the most controversial thing, though, that Paul uh, kept bringing up was the resurrection, because in Greek philosophy, I don't know how familiar you are with it, but in Greek philosophy, uh, the body is often seen as the enemy of the soul. You stop and think of in your life how many times your body gets you into trouble, right? So, you know, temp uh, through temptation or distraction, weakness, whatever. And so in Greek philosophy, they, most, most Greek philosophers believe in life after death, but not in an embodied life after death. And so their goal was to get rid of this body that causes so much trouble, and then we'd be immortal souls no longer hampered down by this physical body. So when Paul begins to teach about the resurrection of Jesus and the future resurrection, we get new bodies back, uh, they wanted nothing to do with this. And so this led into great controversy, and eventually he's going to be called up on charges and summoned before the top religious and ethical council of the city of, uh, of uh, Athens, responsible for the moral and ethical life of the, uh, of the, of the, the city. And remember back, like, this is what happened to Socrates that led to his uh, execution uh, hundreds of years before. So he's going to be brought there, and uh, he's going to be making a defense and sharing his message. And so uh, this morning, I want, you, uh, I want to take you back in time to see how that discussion uh, happens and what he says and how Paul challenges uh, their beliefs and how everything, the whole challenge hinges on the linchpin of the resurrection. So there in your note sheet, you have a section called the uh, resurrection, the challenge. And we're going to pick up this story in Acts chapter 17. And so uh, Paul has come into town. He's done his thing. He's done his sightseeing. He's really concerned. And uh, it says, while Paul was waiting for them, that's his, his buddies to arrive, part of his ministry team, uh, while he was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And so he reasons, uh, he starts in the synagogues with, the, uh, with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks. These would be Gentiles who were drawn to the God of Israel. Um, but as well in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happen to be there. And so a group of Epicurean, so they're like the deists, right? Many gods, but not, uh, God not involved in human life. Uh, and Stoic philosophers, one God, but kind of the force be with you, that kind of a God. Um, so he says, he, uh, he begins to enter into de debate with them. And some of them ask, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. 
And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and they brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, his top council, where he said to them, uh, where they said to him, may we know this new teaching that you're presenting. You're presenting some, uh, you're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know more of what they mean. So Paul stands up in the meeting of Areopagus and he says, people of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. So this was a high compliment. In their culture, in that world, you wanted to be seen as religious. This would be like if I were speaking to a group, maybe a very mixed group, you know, uh, kind of Hindus, uh, Jews, uh, 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 Muslims, uh, uh, New Age, uh, Oprah, uh, that, you know, <laughs> that, uh, and I said to them, I said, hey, it's a privilege to be here tonight because I know that this is a very spiritual group. That would be seen as a high compliment today. And that's kind of what, what he's doing there. And so he's building a bridge. And he says, because as I walked around, you know, the city, and I looked carefully at your objects of worship, you know, these altars and temples and statues and gods and so on, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. That's awesome. In the Roman world, they had hundreds, literally hundreds of gods. The city has all these different uh, idols. But he comes across one as he's doing his sightseeing of this altar to an unknown God. Now, this is just sort of like uh, covering your backside because if some God shows up that you haven't been worshiping, you go, oh, no, we've got it for you. We just didn't know your name. So we're just <laughs> glad that you're here. And he says, uh, he says so I found this uh, altar with the description of unknown God. And, uh, and so you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. You're, you're first to admit you don't have it all together. And so this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. And so now he's going to introduce to them the God of Jesus, uh, the God of the Bible, the description the Bible gives of our race, which, of course, was completely foreign. These were either uh, kind of pagan, you know, think Zeus, uh, uh, Jupiter, um, you know, Mars, um, Athena, uh, uh, Aphrodite, uh, this is the kinds of temples that were throughout their city. So they're either, either kind of uh, religiously what we would call pagan or they were philosophical like Epicureans and Stoics. And so this was all news to them. And so he's starting with a, a pagan philosophical, not a Jewish audience, and saying, like, let me talk to you. And he's going to bring with them kind of the story of the God of Jesus, the God of the Bible. And so he starts off. And remember, when we're looking at Luke's, uh, kind of this is the, Luke is the author of Acts. He's a doctor who's become a follower of Jesus, a physician. And when he writes and he gives us these sermons or these presentations in Acts, I mean, they're really like the cliff notes. They're the brief version. The, the, you know, if you were there, it would be much longer. But it's kind of a, a summary, key points. And so he says, uh, so here's his summary of what Paul's going to say. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth, right? That, so, so notice where he starts. He starts with God. And he says, there is a God, but there's only one God, not many gods. Um, and he's the creator God. And he rules over his creation. And he says, and he doesn't live in temples made by uh, with human hands like you have here in Athens. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath. You and me, he gives us life and breath and everything else. So he's the creator God. Uh, there's only one God. He's a creator God, and he's the source of all life. So that's where he starts. Then he builds on this. He says, and from one man he made all the nations. Now, the Athenians, like uh, most, uh, most cultures, 
had a, so a theory of origin, kind of or, origin theory. Uh, and in Greek myth, the Athenians, the Greeks had come, they had sprung from the earth itself, and they saw themselves as sort of a superior race because that that's how they had come. And so he challenges that, and he brings sort of the biblical description. He says, well, from one man, this God made all the nations <coughs> um, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. So remember, the Epicureans uh, believe many gods, but that God is not involved in human history. And um, Paul says, no, that this creator God, um, he is very involved in human history, and he is determining sovereign over human history. And he says, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. And so not only is God involved, not only is there only one God, but he is a personal God. He is pursuing us. He's actually working in history to bring us to a place so we could know him and enter into the truth of who he is. And he says, um, though he's not far from any of us, like you Stoics have said, he is very close, but he's personal. And he quotes one of their uh, poets in in the Greek philosophy and Greek religion, Roman religion, the poets were often like their theologians. And uh, so he's going to quote a couple of their own poets to support his point. And he says, for in him, I love this, in him we live and move and have our being. This creator God who is, has created all things, the source of all life, this God who is working in human history, to draw us to himself, uh, this God who's a personal God who wants relationship, that he is closer to us than the air we breathe. Just like your own poets have said, we live in him, we move in him, in him we have our being. And he said, as some of your other poets have said, we are his offspring. And therefore, since we're God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, like these idols, an image made by human design and skill. And he says, in the past, God overlooked such, what is he, what is, what's the next word? Ignorance. He says, hey, I know that this is all new to you. You've grown up in your culture. Like, this is what you know. You know Mars. You know Venus. You know Jupiter. You know Stoic philosophy. You know uh, Epicureanism that... Some of you have believed that God is close, but he's not personal. He's just like a, the force or something. He's like, I, I know that. Um, he says, and God has overlooked this ignorance, that this lack of knowledge. But now he what? He commands. So it's not an invitation. It's a command. He commands all people everywhere. That takes in most of us, right? right? So uh, it takes in all people everywhere. Um, to repent. And this is really interesting because in the 21st century uh, here in our country, we often look at the word as uh, repent as a religious word. But uh, in the first century, it wasn't a religious word. To repent just meant to change the way you think or to change your mind or to make a different decision, to realize, hey, I was wrong and I need to go a different direction. 
uh, spiritually mean to do a spiritual uh, U-turn. You used to think that Jupiter or Venus or Aphrodite, these were gods, and you'd go to the temple and you'd serve them, and that's how you approach life. Or you used to think that God was the world spirit, and you just wanted that kind of the, the spirit of rationality that gives order to the world, and you just wanted to align yourself with that. Or you used to think there are many gods that are distant, but but now you need to repent because I'm telling you about the truth about who God is. But of course, the question is, well, how do you know that's the truth? And he says, um, so he commands every, uh, all people everywhere to repent for he has set a day, there's a day coming in the future, when this God will judge the world with justice. Uh, in the Greek, it's the word, normal word for righteousness, dikasune, when he will judge the world with justice or righteousness, but the way God's going to judge the world is by a man, by a human being, someone from our race that he is appointed. And um, so you say, well, how do you know this? How do you, this whole theory of this God who's this uh, creator God, personal God, closer to us in the air than we breathe, a God who's working in human history to draw us to himself, uh, this God that's uh, like, how do you know this? This judgment that's coming is like, how do you know this? And notice what he says. He said, he has given what? Proof. There's the word. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. How do you know this story is true? I just told you. He banks it all on the resurrection of Jesus. We'll come back to that. And so when they heard about this resurrection of the dead, some of them what? Sneered. I mean, this is too much. You've been raised as a pagan. Maybe you're into Greek philosophy. Your whole goal in life is to die and get rid of your body. And now this guy's coming and telling you you're going to get one back. And this is completely outside of your paradigm. You don't want to hear it. And so some of them sneered, but others said, hey, we want to hear you again on this subject. We'd like to hear more. And then so at that, Paul's going to leave the council. Apparently, they're sufficiently satisfied with what he's teaching. It's okay. And so uh, some of the people um, became followers of Paul, and they believed. So notice there was three different kinds of reactions, wasn't there? There were some that sneered, some who said we want to be open, and some who believed right away. For whatever reason, this was enough for them. And so among them, and he gives us two examples of kind of high-ranking people that became followers of Jesus that day. Among them was Dionysius, who was a member of the Areopagus, this high-level court, uh, and also a woman, apparently an influential woman named Damaris, and a number of others, right? So that's the passage. So, so Paul comes to town, perhaps under the cover of darkness. He's escorted in by bodyguards. Once he's safe, uh, they, they leave, and he's got some time to explore, waiting for his colleagues. Uh, he goes through the city, gets familiar, sees all these uh, pagan altars, shrines, uh, monuments, and so on, heart is grieved, begins sharing about Jesus, first with Jews, then with Gentiles, called up in front of the uh, Areopagus to make a defense. He does three different reactions. So a uh, couple points that I want to make from this account today. So there in your note, note sheet is a section called Resurrection, Challenge, and Response. And so there, from out of this passage, I think two points we want to take with us this Easter weekend. Number one is that the resurrection issues a challenge, right? That what we're seeing here on this Easter weekend is the resurrection of Jesus, if it's true, issues a challenge. And what I want you to catch is that Paul is challenging everything they've been raised with and everything they believe. 
If they're a worshiper of Mars, he's challenging that. If they are a follower of Epicurus, he's, fo- he's challenging that. If, they, if they're a, f- a follower of one of the, the leading um, uh, Stoic philosophers of the day, like the Roman philosopher Seneca, he's challenging that. He's challenging their view of origins. He's challenging their view of the future. He's challenging the the nature of the cosmos. He's challenging who God is, how our relationship with God is. He's challenging it all. And he's basing it all on the claim of the resurrection. In other words, if there's no resurrection, this whole story unravels and falls apart. This is interesting because... This is, uh, we're getting one insight to his teaching. But you know, after Paul leaves Athens, we're not sure how long he's there, but after he leaves there, he's not there very long. We know, I mean, it could be maybe weeks. After he leaves there, he's going to travel 60 miles to the south. And he's going to go to uh, a very important city that we're going to be studying in our next series, Metamorphosis. He's going to the city of Corinth, which was the capital of the whole region. Um, And he's going to share the message of Jesus there. And many people are going to come to Christ. He's going to spend 18 months there. And many people are going to come to Christ. And then over the next uh, five, six, seven years, he's going to write them several letters back to help shepherd them as their new uh, followers. We've got two of those letters. We call them First and Second Corinthians. And so in First Corinthians, written about five years after he first arrived, it turns out that there were some in the church of Corinth, not all, but there were some in the church of Corinth who Uh, or actually had become believers in Jesus, but were still struggling with this concept of resurrection. Because of their Greek uh, philosophical background, um, that they were trying to buy into Jesus and his death for our sins, but without a future resurrection. And so Paul writes to them and he says, what are you thinking if there's no resurrection categorically, if that's categorically an impossibility, then that means that even Jesus didn't rise and catch us. Is that if Jesus didn't get a new body, this whole thing's a sham, and we need to go home. And I want you to see what he says. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached. So the, the core message of Jesus. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ, and remember, Christ is... Uh, Christos in Greek is the same as Mashiach or Messiah in in, uh, Hebrew. So this is uh, the Messiah. So he says, uh, here's the gospel, that the Messiah died for our sins. At the heart of the message of Jesus, he said, as we all know this, is is that when Jesus died, it wasn't on accident. It was on purpose, that he died for our sins, that we could be forgiven, our relationship with God be restored. But that's not all. He died for our sins according to the scriptures, uh, as was prophesied, all part of the plan. Um, And then he was buried. He really died. It wasn't some sort of, uh, you know, swoon or something. And that he was uh, raised on the third day according also to the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas. So Cephas is another name for Peter, the apostle Peter. He appeared to Peter. And, uh, And then to the 12. And so we have accounts of this in the gospel where Jesus appeared. They would have dinner together. He would teach them. They could touch his body, still the wounds. And so not uh, it's, it's physical, right? It's just like I like to call it, you know, it's body 2.0, the new version. So after that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers uh, at the same time. It's interesting. In the Gospels, we are not told about this encounter. 
but apparently there was a time when 500 at one time, which definitely rules out any sort of uh, hallucination, group hallucination or something like that. And, uh, and he says, and most of them are still living. Um, I mean, we're, th- he's writing this letter 25 years after the death of Jesus. Many of these people that were there, they saw him. They were firsthand witnesses. You can talk to them. And he said, then he appeared to James. So James is uh, one of the half-brothers of Jesus. Jesus had at least four brothers that, uh, uh, you know, they were, were all sons of Mary. And, uh, and so he appeared to James. And, um, and all of his brothers were told in the Gospels, none of them believed in him while he was, while he was with them, before he was, his resurrection. I mean, it is a little tough. I know sometimes, you know, big brothers act like they're God, but to actually claim it is uh, another thing. And, uh, but after the resurrection, it changed their minds, and they, they, became, they all became followers of Jesus, uh, and James was one of the most important ones. He became one of the leaders of the early church, so, so he appeared to James, personally to James, and then to all the apostles, the rest of the leaders of the early movement of Jesus, and last of all, he appeared to me later on outside the city walls of Damascus. He says, um, so whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach. This is the gospel. The death of Jesus for our sins, his burial, his resurrection, his new body, the coming new creation. Um, you know, his, his resurrection was the first step, of the recreation of all creation, um, that we're going to receive new bodies as followers of Jesus. You know, this is what we preach. And so he says, but if, this is, if it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you, not all of you, but how can some of you there at Corinth say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is what? Useless. In the Greek, it's a word kenos. It means empty, vain, futile. It's ridiculous. He said, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, let's pack it up, go home, not just this day, but every day. Because the whole story hangs on this. It is the proof that he is who he claims to be, that his message is true, that his death worked, it covered our sins, and that the future is coming. And without it, Christianity completely goes away. Everything hinges. But on the other hand, if it did happen, it challenges every other competing claim of who God is, the story of our race, the story of our origins, how we enter into relationship with God, the future that he has, the kind of God he is, and the future that he has planned not only for us but all creation. So the resurrection issues a challenge. Number two, the second thing is that the resurrection requires a response. And this is what Paul says, if this is true, it can't be like, okay, well, that's interesting, I'll go home. I mean, if it's true, it challenges everything we believe and we, it demands a response. In fact, this is what he says there again on your note sheet. In the past, God overlooked such what? Ignorance. Ignorance. Now, every one of us in this room, every one of us over in the Ridge, every one of us online, you can divide our life uh, as of today into a time, Paul would divide into a time of ignorance and a time of information, right? Like every one of us in this room, 
There was a time when we had never heard of Jesus. We had never heard of his death for our sins. We never heard the message of his resurrection. There was a time of ignorance. And for some of us, that might have been very young. It might have been our time of ignorance was zero to four, you know. Uh, For others of us, this may be the very first time we've heard this story about Jesus, his claims, his resurrection. And so for you, then, then you would be like, all years before this would be a time of ignorance of this claim and now information, right? But we all have in our life a line of demarcation that goes through our lives and through our soul. There's a time of ignorance and there's a time of information. And what Paul is saying to these Athenians, they didn't know this before. They had grown up with Jupiter and Mars and Athena and Aphrodite and their household Lares gods. They had grown up in Athens with the philosophy of Stoicism, Epicureanism, and the different philosophies of who God was. This is all they knew. And he says, that's the past, and God is willing to overlook that ignorance. So you've been living in ignorance. You've been living in rebellion. You've been living a life, perhaps, of sin. And he says, but God's willing to overlook all that. But now that you know, you're responsible. Now that you know that God commands a response. And that response is repentance, which again, not a religious term, but this is what you thought reality was, and you aligned your life with reality. There was a reason you went and offered sacrifices to Jupiter. There was a reason you would go to your philosophical discussions with your Stoic buddies. You aligned your life and philosophy with what you believe to be true. But now that I'm telling you the truth about who God is, who we are, how relationship works, you need to do a spiritual U-turn and align yourself with reality. It demands a response. And so the question is, how do we respond to the claims about the resurrection? And in a room like this, um, in a weekend like this, in the different venues like this, um, even for those of us later watching online, that we'll have different responses. For many of us here, Rocky Peak is our home church. For many of us here, that we come today to celebrate the reality of the resurrection. As we look back over our life, we'd say, yes, there was a time of ignorance, and then there became a time of information. And I responded to that, and there was a certain point, whether it took a long time or a short time, where I became convinced of the reality of the resurrection, and I gave my life to Jesus, and I became a follower of Jesus. And so many of us, when we pulled up in our cars today, uh, that we walked into the worship center or the rid, we, as we walked on campus, we were already believers in Jesus. We were not coming to get new information about the resurrection. We're coming to celebrate it. That's great. But there's also, in a room like this, in venues like this, online like this, that for some of us, we came in as one version or not of a non-believer, that we came in today. Um, And the question is, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, how will you respond to the claims of his resurrection? And as I thought about this week, I thought about that there's like really three different responses we can have 
um, and three that parallel three responses the Athenians had. And uh, you can kind of choose your own. I mean, you can, you can find yourself in this. So I just want to describe them, and you can see where you place yourself. And so there in your note sheet, there's a section called Resurrection, Three Responses. It's really hard to do three with this hand. It's like, <laughs> uh, like I know there's certain things, limitations, you know, you, when you, something happens, you, you find out all these things that you do, you can no longer do. And one of them is you can't do three. But um, <laughs> three responses. So the first response, and this is one of my kind of honored responses. Uh, my heart goes out to I can relate to you so much. Uh, this would be the response of the skeptic, right? So some of us, when we hear the message about the resurrection of Jesus, by nature, we are skeptics. We would parallel uh, the Athenians who were listening to Paul at the Areopagus until he got to the resurrection, and then they sneered. It was like, turn the station. Like, I am done with this guy. I am over this. Uh, this is ridiculous. Now, the reason they thought it was ridiculous and the reason you think it's ridiculous may be completely different. For them, uh, the reason may be because I don't want to get body back. That's ridiculous. Who would want a body back? Uh, for us, it may be, hey, that's not scientific. That's just legend. That's just myth. The uh, kind of re, the re, re-dying, re, uh, being born again gods of the past. And so, um, and so your reasons may be different, but you would self-identify as a skeptic. And as I said, I have a tremendous heart for you because at, that my nature, I'm not necessarily proud of this, but by nature, I am sort of a skeptic, right? And uh, so in my journey of faith, um, dealt with a lot of questions, a lot of doubt, a lot of research, and so my heart goes out to understand that. But here would be my challenge to you, is that this is a huge claim that Paul is making. This is a huge claim that the early followers of Jesus make. And there is no reason why they would make this claim. When you study historically, this does not make any sense There's nothing in their culture, there's nothing in history, there's nothing they got for this but death. And as you go back and study it, the evidence for this is compelling. And here's what I'd suggest to you, if you see yourself, yeah, I would self-identify as a skeptic, I would suggest as a friend that, hey, you owe it to yourself if you consider yourself an honest, an intellectually honest person to at least study the basics of one of the most uh, uh, powerful cultural influences, historical influences, that's influenced billions of worlds, still influences our world today, that you owe it yourself to at least spend a little bit of time to say, is it true or is it ridiculous? And there are many different ways you could go about this, but I want to give you one way, simple way, that I think you would enjoy uh, I'm going to recommend a book to you. You could either read it. If you're a reader, listen in Audible. If you have a commute, you like. I like taking in books that way. Um, but I want to recommend a book for you. It's there on your note sheet. It's called The Case for Christ. And one of the reasons I like this book is it's written by a former skeptic. That uh, The author, Lee Strobel, is a very gifted man. He was uh, educated at Yale as an attorney. Uh, He later became the legal writer for the Chicago Tribune in Chicago. And uh, and then something happened in his life that just rocked his world. And what happened is his wife became a follower of Jesus. And as far as he was concerned, that wrecked his life. And so he needed to 
show her this was the worst mistake and why this was ridiculous. So he decided to use all his skills as a, uh, as, as a, a high-level attorney, all his reasoning skills, and all his research skills as a journalist and put these together, do some investigative reporting on the claims of Jesus, on the claims of Christianity, and especially on the resurrection to show his wife how this was ridiculous. It was legend, it was myth. She needed to get out of this cult of Christianity, right? But in the process, as he begins to do his research, um, which is very fascinating, easy to read, he just takes you on the journey he went on, um, he moves slowly from skeptic to, huh, to, whoa, to, wow, to, I can't believe this, to, yes, right? And so he moved from skeptic to believer in his journey. And so I, I would just, it's an easy way just to check it out and see if you find the evidence as compelling as I do, as he did, as many others have. Uh, number two. The second kind of response is the response of a seeker. And so for some of us here, whether you are here at Rocky Peak all the time, you're with us part of the time, all the time, or whether you're brand new today, whether it's your first time in church, or you've never been in church, um, or you've often been in church, or you were raised in church, um, or maybe you were raised in another faith, and this is holding you, but you would classify yourself as a seeker. And you would correspond to the people in Athens that said, yeah, we don't believe this yet, but we want to hear more. We're interested. You remember those people? They said, yeah, we want to hear more. And uh, I think that's a beautiful response. I mean, coming to Jesus is a life-changing decision. It will impact every part of your life. It will impact your worldview. It will turn your world eventually upside down. It will transform you. And so, Anyone who would make a decision to follow Jesus, it makes sense to me to get some good information on this and to seek it out. And so if you're wired that way, I would encourage you, take the same journey, get the book, but I would also encourage you to make this seeking a high priority. Don't put it on the back burner. Don't wait till next Easter. Don't wait till Christmas. I would encourage you to find a good church, find a church that believes in the gospel. Remember, remember the gospel about he died for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose again. You know, that, that in other words, it takes the Bible seriously, takes Jesus seriously. Find a good church in your area. If you're out of town, find one in your area. If you can't find one, follow us online. You can watch all of our messages uh, online at YouTube. Uh, but look for a good church in your area. Or maybe you're in this area, but you're like, you know what? Um, you know, Rocky Peak's okay. It's just not for me. It's like, great, there's a lot of great churches in this area. It doesn't matter whether it's here or somewhere else. What matters is Jesus, not Rocky Peak, right? So we just need to find, uh, you just need to seek this out. And one of the best ways is just to, to spend time with people who have crossed over the line, to ask you questions, to find a place that's loving, accepting, gives you space to grow and think and to ask tough questions, uh, and that they just love you, and you can just get here more. But the, the other suggestion that I would give for you if you see yourself as a seeker is I would challenge you to pray a very simple but very radical prayer. And it goes something like this, Jesus, if you're real and if this story is true, then would you reveal yourself to me? And if you do, I will follow you. And that is a radical prayer. You have to have some courage. You have to have some courage to offer that prayer. 
and you say, but I'm not even sure if there is a God. That's okay. If there's not a God, no one's listening. (laughs) Just do it on your own. No one will ever know. It takes 10 seconds, and it can change your life. Number three, the third kind of response to a message on the resurrection is the response of the believer. And this is interesting. Honestly, this is the hardest person for me to to identify with. It's hard for me to imagine being growing up and being an Epicurean or being a Stoic or growing up as a pagan, going to the temple. My whole life in, in Roman culture, everything was religious. Everything was religious. Every politic, every, um, uh, every work group. I mean, everything was religious. It's hard for me to imagine I would go to the Areopagus that day, hear Paul make this presentation, and just like, okay, I'm in. But the reality is, sometimes it happens that way. For some people, maybe you've been on a spiritual journey and God has been preparing your heart for a long time. I'm sure that's the case with these believers that came in that day. They were probably fed up with Roman paganism. They probably saw the emptiness of it. They felt it for a long time. There was probably some there who had been Epicurean or Stoic philosophers, but they saw the strength of that philosophy, but there was also, they saw the emptiness, the lack of answers. They had poured themselves into this search for the meaning of life, and it had come up empty. And they were now experts on the philosophy, but they knew it wasn't satisfying the deepest desires of their heart. However it happened, on that day, they were ready. And when they heard the message of Jesus, maybe they had been listening to him in the marketplace during the week, but when they heard it, it made perfect sense. It was like a light going on in a dark room, and it was, they could see it clearly. And they were struck with the reality of the resurrection and the reality of a God who loved them, a God who is closer to them than the air that they breathe, a God in whom they lived and moved and had their being, but a personal God who worked out Uh, was working to draw them into relationship, a God that would overlook the ignorance, overlook the sin, make a way for them to come home. They were so drawn to that God. They wanted to know that God. They wanted to be transformed by him, by the power of his spirit. They wanted a new life. They wanted to know that the next life is real, and they wanted to be part of it. And there was something within them that drew you. And you know what? I believe there are some people here today, maybe over in the ridge, and maybe later online, but I've had times like this where, where someone is talking and your heart is beating in your chest and you just want to run forward. You, you say like, I am so hungry, I am so ready, I don't know any more teaching. All I need is someone to tell me how to meet this Jesus. I need someone to tell me how to enter into that relationship with God because that's what I want and I have crossed the line. At some point when Paul was talking, I crossed the line, I believe it. I can see it, it's true and I want in. And if that's you today, I'm gonna give you a chance in a few minutes to ask Jesus into your life. But before we do that, I want to share with you a fascinating case study of a couple that came to Rocky Peak just a few years ago. And it's interesting, they were brought up in the, uh, kind of the Muslim faith, in Islam. 
And that's not the point of the story, because the point of the story is it doesn't matter how we were brought up or what we believe before we come to Jesus. It, what Jesus always cares more where we're going than where we've come from. We all need Jesus. So if you're a Hindu, you need Jesus. If you're a Muslim, you need Jesus. If you're a Jew, you need Jesus. You need Jesus. If you're a Baptist, you need Jesus. Like, we all need Jesus, right? We all need Jesus. And so they came in, interesting, and when they first came to Rocky Peak, one came as a seeker, one came as a skeptic, but they both ended up at the end of their journey meeting Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, and they both moved from skeptic and seeker to believer. And I want to share that story with you. So let's turn our attention. Let's pray together. Father, now this rebel heart belongs to you. And this is the core of the gospel, that we're a rebel race. And we come and we repent. It's aligning ourselves with the reality of that. And then receiving forgiveness and new life. And while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I want to give us a chance to respond to the challenge of the resurrection and I want to give each of the three categories kind of your, opp your opportunity to respond to that challenge and so to you my, my friends my beloved um, skeptics uh, I just want to challenge you maybe you were here today and you would identify with those Athenians so quick to sneer and turn away and my question for you is would you be willing to be a little bit more open-minded? Would you be willing to explore, to be intellectually honest and look at the facts that have been so compelling to so many and to start this journey, at least to begin to explore what you're rejecting? For those of us here that would identify as seekers, are you, are you willing to make this a priority in your life, not just to come and to leave Easter, but to say, all right, I'm going to put a stake in the ground. I need to find out if this is true or not. And maybe you'd buy the book. Um, you'd find a church. Uh, but most of all, you would, you would find some time today in the quietness of your own room or in the, in the service here during our worship that's coming just to pray that honest, heartfelt cry. And God, if you're real, if this is true, if you're the true God, if the resurrection is real, would you open my eyes? Would you reveal yourself to me and give me the power to follow you? And then for those of you here that for whatever reason, that today's your day, it's, it's like something within you has changed. Maybe God's been stirring this for a long time. Maybe it's been coming for a long time. Maybe this is the end of a long journey of searching. Or maybe you came in expecting to walk out unchanged, but to your surprise, like those Athenians at the Areopagus, something is clicking, something's real. And it's not just that it's real, but, but you're seeing that this is good news. This is the good news you've been looking for your whole life. A God who loves you, a God who is a creator God, who is sovereign over creation, working in history to draw you revealing himself in Jesus, making a way for you to be forgiven, a God who will overlook your ignorance and welcome you home, a God who will not only forgive you but fill you with his spirit, the spirit of Jesus, 
so that you have the power to change and be transformed to become the person you were created to be and that and spend the next life that's real it's not ethereal it's not in the clouds it's an embodied life new bodies like Jesus new body in a new heaven a new earth I mean just to to rule with him forever I mean you're just hungry for that today and you just want to know how do I do that how do I do what Natalie did how do I how do I cross over that line how do I become a follower of Jesus and what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to pray a very simple prayer and if it expresses a desire of your heart I encourage you to, to follow along join along you can pray it Follow me like under your breath or in your heart or in your mind. But if you're sincere, the Lord will hear. And so just follow with me. Dear Jesus, I ask you into my life. I thank you for your life and death and resurrection for me. I ask you to forgive me for my rebel heart, for my sin. And thank you for overlooking the times of ignorance in my life. But now I want to come home. I ask you into my life, and not just to forgive me, but to transform me supernaturally by the power of your spirit to become the person I was created to be and to live a life of love as you've loved me. So I can live with you forever in the new creation that's coming. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, if you just prayed that prayer, first of all, I want to welcome you to the kingdom, to the family. You've just started an amazing journey. And secondly, I want to send you a letter this week with just some steps, the first steps of following Jesus that'll be helpful, simple steps. And so what I ask you to do is during our next song, we're going to be receiving our offering and but inside your inside your worship folder there's a little card called a connect card and if you just fill out the front and just write in the back michael i gave my life to jesus or i asked jesus in my life we'll send you a letter this week just to help you with some first steps and so father we come today we come in jesus name we come only in his name we recognize that we would have no right to come before you and call you Father apart from the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. But because of his death, there's a way for us to come home, to be forgiven, to be restored. And so as we come now and we worship you, we celebrate that the resurrection of Jesus is not just a point in history, but because you came back to life, you live today. And you have the power to infuse us with your resurrection life, power to change, to grow, to become the people you're created to be. And so we want to celebrate that. And so as we worship and as we bring our offerings, our tithes, our gifts to you, we pray you use these to build a place where the message of Jesus and his life-transforming resurrection shines out, is called out loud and clear. And many come into a new relationship with you through the message that goes out from here. We pray this in your name. And everyone said, amen. Let's stand together as we